Okay, let's, uh, let's spend some time in God's Word together. We are um, still in Exodus for a, a few more weeks. Uh, we're going to backtrack a little bit uh, to the book of the law. That is Exodus chapter 21 through 23. Um, I don't know. I, we've all put something together from Ikea, yeah? You know how when you're done putting together something from Ikea, you've got that bag of leftover hardware, and you're like, where does this go? Is this important? I hope not. And you just kind of stow it away, right? Well, when, for, for Christians, a lot of the time when we look at the Old Testament law, right, the laws that we find in the Old Testament, we're like, what's this for? Nothing, I hope. I'm just going to put it over there and like, okay? And so I have a pretty lofty goal because this is the first set of laws outside of the Ten Commandments uh, that we have in the Bible. My goal, my goals are lofty this morning. One, I hope that you understand what the Old Testament law is there for, for us. Two, it is my hope that... uh, you start liking the Old Testament law instead of seeing it as like, ooh, that's, uh, you know, at at best spare parts, at worst, uh, you know, like like the villain of the Bible. And three, and if I get here, then I deserve a pizza. Uh, Three, that you would see the law as a blessing, okay? Not just spare parts to be tossed. Okay, let's pray before we begin. God, I I pray for your help this morning as we open your law, which throughout your word is raised as being something that makes makes one wise, that gives life, um, that is a blessing from you. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand how your law is a blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, My first year that I lived in Denver, quite a while ago now, uh, me and a few other guys went snowshoeing. Wanted to try snowshoeing. I was living in Colorado. Seemed like a, a good opportunity. So we went to St. Mary's Glacier. Anybody been up St. Mary's Glacier? Like, so there's that first part where you get to the glacier, right? And then, and then there's the glacier itself. Has anybody been up the glacier? Okay. So you go up the glacier. It's quite steep. It was winter. Snow was deep. But we had snowshoes and we were men. And so... <laughs> So we, with very little idea of what we were doing, uh, charged right on up. And, uh, and after we got to the top, well above tree line and all that, you know, you kind of get to this area where it flattens out. And it's, there's no trees, there's no bushes, everything's buried in snow, right? And someone's like, hey, it's so boring to be on the trail. We're men with snowshoes, let's traverse. And I brought up the practical question at risk of being mocked. Uh, hey guys, what if we get lost? And they were like, turn around. And I turned around and I looked. And there, plain as day, was that gigantic hill we had come up. And so it was very clear, uh, all we have to do to get back to the parking lot is head downward. No problem. No problem. Nothing is going to happen. And then a couple of snowflakes fell as we were traversing boldly with Jolly laughs, ha ha, why stay on trail? We have snowshoes, we're men. A couple more snowflakes fall. Is it going to snow today? Oh, I don't think so. It was cloudy. And within a couple of minutes, 
we were in pure whiteout conditions. I brought a little, little video slide. This is what whiteout conditions looks like. Okay, this is what we were in within a couple of seconds. Now, we were like, um, is this a problem? No, we just, we just go back down. Where's down? Where's up? Where's whichever way? We couldn't tell. You want to know why? Because that's all we could see. No trees, no trails, no rocks, white out. Every direction, we couldn't see Jack. Literally, there was a guy named Jack with us. He was like 10 feet away. I was like, Jack, where are you? I can't even see you. And it was cold, like really cold, like beard sickle cold. Like, like we had anti, like non-freezable water bag bottles. They froze. I started to hear wolves howling in the distance. We were no longer, we were no longer going this way and that with, you know, glad some cries. We were huddled together trying to figure out which way was back. And we didn't know which way was back because we had whiteout conditions. We live in a historical moment of incredible moral confusion, okay? Where we as a society have no direction. We have no signposts. We have no idea which way to go in terms of what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to to know the difference between right and wrong? Because on the one hand, we, we have a strong belief in our society that rules are kind of the opposite of freedom, right? And, and what's more is that there can be no universal rule, no universal law. And we hear this all the time, right? Don't impose your morals on me or to each his own. Or I'm living my truth. Or, you know, you can't judge someone else. Or you can't legislate morality. These are all getting at the same thing. That there is no, like, immovable, overarching moral law. That it's everyone has to decide for themselves what that is. So on the one hand, we're trying to tear down any sense we have of it, of like, like a fixed point morally. You guys following me? Right? And even this is uh, on an academic level, those of you guys who have taken some, some classes in college, you know right? that this is the project of sort of the critical postmodern scholars, right? the, the Michel Foucaults of the world, uh, you know, Judith Butler who came up with queer theory. This is not about sexuality. Her whole thing was just to blur every clear line, right? to say, hey, you think you know, you don't. Right? But the problem is when you blur and you blur, and you blur, what do you end up with? You end up with whiteout. I was going to point to it. It's not there anymore. <laughs> That's what you end up with, right? You end up with no clarity of any kind. Now, the reason this is a problem is because at the same time that we're blurring any fixed point for us to know the difference between right and wrong, we're also demanding moral behavior, aren't we? Like, one, I've never met a person who's like, I want to be a villain. <laughs> you know, I just want to be a terrible human being. I've never met that person. And also, right, look, at, look at the hue and cry over, over racism or greed or, or the Me Too movement or any of these things. And, and we see that on the one hand, we're like, hey, there are no moral absolutes. And on the other hand, you better be moral. That's confusing, isn't it? That's wide out. It's like you want to go in the right direction, but how do you know what the right direction is? That's a whiteout. You can't tell which way's down, which way's up. And so 
How are we supposed to live morally good lives when we can't answer the question, what makes something moral or immoral? How do you distinguish between the two? Well, then many will say, well, you can't. It's all relative. Right? Like every person's got to decide what's right for them. And some of you guys may hold this. There's a huge problem here. You know what it is? You can call nothing evil. Nothing. Because that's just what they've decided is right for them. Also, if you try and set up a society on that, like you've got Thunderdome. Beyond Thunderdome, in fact. It's just pure anarchy. It's, right? it, it doesn't work. And then we say, okay, well, well maybe not. It, maybe like you go with your gut, your heart. If it feels right, it is right. Some of you guys may be living your lives by that rule. You know, your gut just knows. Just something internal knows. It's a big problem with that, too. You know what it is? Your gut, your heart, your feeling is very, very socially conditioned. If we were to compare guts uh, with, in the West with those in Saudi Arabia or ancient people or whoever, do we have the same set of rules? Like, does everybody respond and think that this, feel the same things are right and wrong? Not at all. That's just, that's chaos too, isn't it? And they say, okay, well, it's whatever your society says, right? If you're, if you're good according to the rules of your society, you're good. Anybody see a problem there? It makes, it makes social reform impossible. What about the person who says, you know, this is wrong in my society. We actually need to rethink this. That person is going against what their society says is right, right? Like, you, you have no civil rights movement. You, you, you have no abolitionists, right? Making sense? You say, okay, well, it's based on human rights. You know, if we could just, just acknowledge that human beings have rights, as, as, as Tommy J said, you know, these rights are self-evident. I hate to differ with one of the founding fathers, but human rights are anything but self-evident. Well, what about human rights are self-evident? If they were self-evident, then we would expect to find in every society in history, a concept of human rights, that every human being is valuable because they're human, right? You don't. You do not at all. At all. And we say, okay, well, what about whatever results in the greatest good for the greatest number? Some of you guys may have heard that. Some of you guys may believe that. Right? that that's a version of what's called consequentialism. Okay? Now, the, reason, the, the big problem with that is that last century, this idea of, hey, if a good comes from it, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as the end result is greater, you know, greater good than bad. Well, that, that's what the fascists and communists used as their ethic to justify mass murder of hundreds of millions of people for a greater good. Is this getting more and more hopeless for you? I hope. You know, like, like all of the options available to us are white out. We, we get no direction. We're commanded to be moral. We want to be moral. But how do we do it? There's one alternative. It's if there is a creator God who gives us guidance. Right? When we look at the law, here's what the law of God is not. It is not the things you need to do well enough to be saved. 
It's never what the law was. You won't find that in the Bible. Also, the law, these laws are not things that we pick up and put down in 21st century Denver. Okay, there's a lot of things about ox goring in here. I don't think any of you have oxen unless urban farmers have gone that far. <laughs> then you need to be aware of ox goring laws. Instead, what, when God gives us his law, what he's doing is he, he's, he's giving us instruction on walking a path of love. What does it mean to live a life of love? Well, we just went through the whole Ten Commandments, and now the book of the law are examples. Clearly, in three pages, God is not giving an exhaustive law code. And also, if we look at individual laws, we're going to be like, what's that about? I want you to think of what we're going to cover as like a Monet painting. You get right up on a Monet painting, all you see is like dots and random stuff, but you step back from it, you're like, oh, that's beautiful. Right? You see the big picture. So we're going to try and focus on the big picture. How does God guide us in living a life of love? Three things. This is what the entire law boils down to. And this is not my own work. I am relying on other scholars. Not other scholars, because I'm not one. It's to live out love through justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. When we look at the law... All of God's law falls into those three categories, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So what do we mean by justice? First of all, and remember, this is just for example, you you apply it in different situations, but you look for the big picture principle. So first of all, legal equality, Uh, Exodus 21, 22 through 24 says this. It's, It's weird, but trust me. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You all loved that. That was a blessing. You'll do that for devotions. No. (laughs) What's going on there? You're like, oh, that's what I thought the Old Testament law was going to be. That's super mean. A tooth for a tooth. Who does that? Right? Don't miss what it's actually being said. Remember, in the ancient world, there were very few law codes. But you want to know what an ancient reader would have seen here? All right. The Code of Hammurabi. Anybody heard of that? All right. Code of Hammurabi. Ancient Babylonian law code. Do you want to know what the punishment was for theft in the Code of Hammurabi? Take a guess. Alejandro got it. Death. Not cut off your hand. It's, it's, it's not this. It's more of this. <laughs> Anyone want to know what the penalty was for helping an escaped slave in the Code of Hammurabi? Death. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to know what the penalty was for a wine merchant who threw a raucous drunken party? Death. Death. Death, that's right. Okay, so, so this whole eye for eye thing is like people say it's so nasty, but what it's actually saying is only an eye for an eye, not a life for an eye. Makes sense? It's saying that there should be legal equality. And the other thing that is huge here that our eyes don't see, but an ancient reader would have, is there is no separate code for nobles. Ancient law codes, medieval law codes, modern law codes a lot of the time have one set of laws, quite literally, codified 
for the rich, for the noble, another for commoners, and another for slaves. Okay? You don't find that here. It is one law for everybody, legal equality. But also, justice means human dignity. If we look at chapter 22, verses 21 through 27, it says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless and your dog will cry and your feelings will be hurt. Right? Like, so, so the, the, this is obviously, he's talking about the most vulnerable people in society. If the strong oppress the weak. Right? That, that everybody, everybody's human dignity needs to be recognized. Verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Okay, so this is really, really key. Something that is unique to the Bible is that we're taught that all human beings are of equal value. That is, you won't find that elsewhere, right? That all human beings are made in the image of God and that simply by virtue of being a human being, everybody is owed dignity. You will not find that outside of the Christian faith in the Bible. Okay, it doesn't exist. So this... This whole concept of living out love through justice, right? Through legal equality and human dignity. Um, like, if you think about this, there's actually, human rights don't make a whole lot of sense on a secular basis, right? If, if, the, if the story that what we really are is a bunch of, like, biological entities in competition with one another, right? Like, survival of the fittest. If that's the true nature of the world, human rights don't make any sense, do they? That, that the strong should care for the weak, that, that, that the, the people who are not able-bodied are just as valuable as those who are able-bodied. Really what makes the most sense, if the true nature of the world is survival of the fittest, that all things are struggling for limited resources and mates, right, is that the strong should dominate the weak. That's the, that, that would make the most sense, wouldn't it? Now, some of you guys... Uh, and maybe, maybe we won't even go into this, but I think you'll be interested in it, is, is if you look at the very beginning, chapter 21, uh, there are laws about slaves, right? And, and people kind of clutch the pearls. and like, oh my gosh, the Bible's okay with slavery. Should we go into this? Yeah? Okay, great. Because it seems to undermine this whole human rights thing, doesn't it? The whole image of God thing. All right, so, so when we look at, at chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. All right, and it goes on. And so here's the thing, because I, I think that we've all kind of heard this as a critique of, of the teaching of the Bible, that like, oh, well, the Bible condones slavery. Okay, so if you were an ancient reader, here are some things that you would notice. Actually, before we get to that, 
one thing we have to do is separate what we had in the new world, new world slavery, from ancient Hebrew slavery. Here are some important differences. One, no slave trade. The, the, the law of God, in, in this book of the law, it says if you steal someone to sell them, you are to be put to death. Right? Slave trade was punishable by death, absolutely forbidden. Right? So that's one major difference. Two, it was not race-based. Okay? Even in ancient slavery, even like Roman slavery was not race-based. Like that was something peculiar to the horrible New World uh, version of it. Another thing, slavery, and what we see here is it's voluntary. Okay? Right? Like nobody is forced. The reason it existed was because if you were a farmer, which everybody was, and your crops fail, what you could do is get hired on at another household so that you wouldn't starve to death. Okay? And not only was it voluntary, it was temporary. It says you serve for six years in the seventh, you go free. So it is a short-term commitment to, be, to work on someone else's house, and they're obligated to give you uh, clothing and shelter so that you survive. So it's very, very different from what we imagine as, as slavery. And, and here's the thing. It's not that there was no slavery and, and you know, the law of Moses is like, you should start slavery. Slavery was everywhere. It's, it's the most ubiquitous institution in human history. And what an ancient reader would see is, wow, slaves have rights, right? They're not chattel. They're not owned for life. You, you have to treat them well, right? So it's very, very different. Now, as, as we think about, like, what, what would that mean if we are to be a people who are about living out love through justice now? Well, I mean, legal equality, I, and understand, there is no perfect society. So I, I, I don't mean to, like, just criticize our own. But when we look at who's in prison right now, 75% of the prison population is below the poverty level. You say, well, okay, maybe the poor just commit more crimes. All right, all right. Here's one thing I do know. The rich have better lawyers. Okay? Like, we, we have a system in which how much, how many, how much resources uh, you have determines, like, the quality of your defense. Also... Uh, to make bail, right? A lot of people who are, who are in prisons right now, and I realize there's a different term for it, like jail, lockup, whatever you want to call it, they've been convicted of no crime but cannot afford bail, so they are effectively imprisoned. They're not free, right? That, that is not legal equality. That is not justice. And here's another thing about human dignity, that, that everyone is owed dignity by virtue of being human, regardless of nationality, regardless of being able-bodied or whatever. As you're thinking through any issue today, any issue, any war, anything that's happening at the border, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I will say this. Our first and primary concern is human dignity. Not self-interest, not national interest, not financial interest. All right? So whatever your position is on whatever, the first question that the scripture's going to have, have for you, that God's going to have for you, is how is this respecting the image of God 
and, and, and that person's dignity. Okay? But it's not just justice, it's also mercy. Um, we see that mercy is actually a requirement. Chapter 23, 10 through 12 says this. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Now, you notice that's not if you feel like it, right? What this is saying is like, remember, everybody's a farmer, and it's saying you have to rotate your fields. There are certain years you have to let your fields lie fallow. Why? So that the poor who don't have fields to plant on can plant there and that they can eat. That this relief of distress was not an option. It was an obligation of everybody. And also that it's universal. When we look at verse 12, you you see who's included here? It says, so that your donkey can rest, your ox, the son of your servant woman, the alien. This is someone who's not even part of your people. You have an obligation to have mercy on them as well. And you know what? As the Bible goes on, like this, this, is, this is a major theme. This is one of the major updates. Is that God himself takes the place of the poor, of the sufferer, of the oppressed in the person of Jesus. This is, this is actually another thing that's unique to the Christian faith, is that we believe there's nobility in suffering and it's wicked to cause suffering. Right? Which, which might be news to some of you guys. Wait, doesn't everybody think suffering, causing suffering is wrong? No. No, you heard of Alexander the Worst, who I don't like calling the Great. Right? He was perfectly fine inflicting all kinds of suffering. The Mongols came through, killing all these people. There was this, there was this uh, uh, Russian Christian who was like weeping once as, as he was standing next to a Mongol general you know, as a city was burning. And he's like, what are you doing? Weeping for the dead? That's weird. <laughs> right? So any idea of like, hey, we're going to root morality in, in like suffering bad and causing suffering bad. Again, suffering is bad. Again, that comes from the Christian faith. For us, what that means is mercy is not optional. A lot of the time we can look at relief of distress as like, yeah, that's for like super Christians or if you're into that. Instead, the, the people of God should be actively involved in relieving distress in society. Okay, wherever we find it. And a lot of you guys, when you look at your jobs, it's exactly what you're doing like vocationally, like full time. Working with the homeless or the addicted. You're providing counseling for the, for the relief of a mental and emotional distress or, or education or medicine and the list goes on. But also, you know, when, when we think, we have, a, we have a political system in which we have a voice and we have a vote. We actually make a difference, right? We don't have a, a monarch. When we are evaluating how we're supposed to engage 
in our society, in our political system, the question we need to ask ourselves is not what's just best for me, but instead, how is this in keeping with mercy? And this also really matters on an interpersonal level. Because mercy, it does mean relieving distress. It also means withholding judgment, right? It means withholding punishment, like a just punishment. It means that just as, just as Jesus is praying on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, right? Like having mercy towards those, who's wronged them, those who have wronged them. It means that we are to be a people of mercy. We're not going to extract the pound of flesh for how we're wronged. We're going to bear the suffering that others inflict on us and let them go. We're going to forgive. Wouldn't it be great if that was the headlines about Christians in the news? They're so merciful. They care so much about the suffering. They're so forgiving. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if if that's what we're known for? That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to live out love through justice, through mercy, and also through faithfulness. Through faithfulness. And that that means to be true to a relationship, to be honoring of your your commitments, to walk in integrity. And so we have to ask, who who are we to be faithful to? First of all, it's to God. Um, Chapter 23, verses 13 and following. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. This is not saying don't have a discussion, saying don't call on Baal, right? Like, I'm your God, you're my people. Um, And so all all of this about, you know, the keep the fasts and, and, you know, the the holidays and all of these things, um, you know, bringing these offerings of worship and sacrifice, that's all about... What, we, what you need to do, what they needed to do, ancient Israelites, to be a faithful participant in relationship with God. Okay? Um, but not only with that, not only faithful to God, um, and you're going to hate this, but also faithful to authority. Uh, chapter 22, verse 28 says this, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. thinking back have I cursed someone who has you know is in office ever yeah maybe maybe but but like (laughs) and this is not the only verse that says this right throughout the Bible there are multiple commands that part of part of reverence and faithfulness to God is also faithfulness uh, to authority that's over us and also Uh, faithfulness to each other. You might not like this either. Uh, Chapter 23, verses 4 through 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Okay, so this is saying to your worst enemy, we won't even show up to help our friends move, you know? This is saying, help your enemy. Rescue your enemy. So it's faithfulness to God, faithfulness to authority, faithful uh, to each other. 
Don't worry about that. Um, so first of all, faithfulness to God, what does that mean for us? Because, you know, we, it, we, you know the, the, the sacrificial system is no longer with us. So what does that mean for us to apply this principle of being faithful to God? Well, first of all, it means that God is our primary allegiance. That only God can bind our conscience, not our family, not our political or ideological tribe. And if the teaching of God's word, if the, if the principles of Jesus come into conflict with how we were raised, with what the government says, or with what our ideological or political tribe says, our first allegiance is to God, okay? It also means that we're faithful in worship. You can all feel self-righteous here at worship. <laughs> it means that when we come here uh, and we offer praise to God together, uh, when we are at home and we are you know, doing a personal one-on-one time with God or gathering together in groups, that's part of being faithful to relationship with God. And also finances, right? Like a lot of the time our attitude towards giving to God is after I've bought everything I could possibly want, I might find some extra if there's margin. It's to view giving to God not as a want, but as a need. It's up there with the water bill. That sort of thing, right? That's faithfulness to God. Now, faithfulness to authority. Of course, that means the state, right? The, The government that God has placed over us. Does that mean we cannot work for reform? Of course we can, especially in our system where, where reform is built right in. It, you can be totally respectful and faithful uh, to authority that's over us and still advocate for reform. But sedition, right, the overthrow of government is something very different. We're not going to get into it right now. Uh, but also, if, like, if you've taken membership vows at like church, there's actually authority over us. I've taken membership, I've taken vows, right, as a, as a minister, and there's authority over me. And, and part of walking, living out love through faithfulness is being faithful to those authorities, even when I don't like it. Okay? And then there's being faithful to each other. Right? I think we all have a pretty solid idea of what that means. You've made marriage vows, you're faithful to them. You have a child, you, you, you need to be a faithful parent or a faithful uh, son or daughter to church. Right? There are relationships within church. You're going to faithfully invest in those or employer or so on. Right? Again, it, it's, we don't overfocus on the brushstrokes. We're looking for the big picture. Instead of, instead of being in this hopeless whiteout, right, with no guideposts and, and no path, God gives us a path to live out love through justice, mercy, and faithfulness. When we were up there on the, on the glacier, like there was, there was kind of a moment where the snow slowed and we could vaguely see a downhill and we went for it. It turned out it was not really a um, proper path. It was more of a hill. So we slid, but we did hit a path eventually that got us back. And, you know, the funny thing is, is we always think of like, like, like when, our, when our options are narrowed down, oh, that's so restrictive. You know what we didn't say? 
Oh, now our options are narrowed down. It's so restrictive. We were so free before. We had no direction of any kind. We were like, thank God we found this path. Right? What God intends with his law is not to be a killjoy, not to give us a moral straitjacket of some kind, but to guide us in how to live a life of love, to give us a path out of the whiteout. God's law is not restrictive. Instead, it's showing us the path of love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that with the psalmist, we can say how much we love your law, that it, it gives us wisdom, that it, it helps us understand who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. I pray, God, that we would not fall prey to just the directionlessness that is all around us, that instead we would look to you as the foundation of our reality, as your revelation, as the, your, your word, as a light to our feet that shows us the path. In Jesus' name, amen.